Great. Uh, it's a great morning. Welcome here. It's great to be able to celebrate this morning. And, and I'm going to read this psalm one more time. Uh, but what I want to do is preempt it with, with a, a, a blurb of my grammar. See, verse 1 is this introduction and this call, and it actually has an imperative in it. But then verses 2 to 9 give us the reason why we're supposed to praise God. And then verse 10, actually, if, if, if these are the reasons, this is what you need to do. Okay? So I'm going to read it again. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. And notice, notice the reference to God's work and notice the references to his character. And we'll notice this in a minute. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. There you have it twice, his covenant. Holy and awesome is his name. And then verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. All right, let's unpack this psalm together. Of course, verse 1, praise and extol the Lord. The psalmist begins our psalm with praise the Lord. And this line actually serves as a title for both Psalm 111, 112, and 113. All three have this as a title. And it's an imperative. It's an opening line, imperative, basically a shout of hallelujah. It would be translated in English, hallelujah. And, and then that call, that imperative, that call to praise God is followed by a personal commitment. There's no point in me telling you to praise God if I don't praise God myself. So then the psalmist also gives this commitment, I will extol the Lord. I will praise the Lord. And that word extol actually carries a sense of confessing, proclaiming, and making known. So there's a missional purpose, just like our call to worship verse this morning, there's this missional component. We praise God, we are thankful, we we express our thanks in part because we're grateful, but also in part because we are honoring and lifting God's name up. There's a missional component there. Confession and testimony are central to the community of God's people. And later on this morning, we're going to give you a chance to express praise as well. These confessions, these testimonies form part of our teaching. They shape and inform those who hear these words of testimony, and they're part of our witness to our neighbors as well. So why? Why are we supposed to praise God and extol Him and lift His name up? Verses 2 to 9. Well, the first reason is God's works. Notice what it says about God's works. They are great, they are glorious and majestic. His wonders are remembered. And David is referring here specifically to the Exodus or the Passover, the Exodus out of slavery in Egypt. And this morning, although you and I aren't Jews and we haven't been enslaved in Egypt, we are celebrating our exodus out of slavery to sin. 
It's an even greater exodus. He provides food. He's talking about the quail and the manna. His works are powerful. He has provided redemption. And again, there's that redemption referring to Exodus, salvation, promised land. And like I said, we have been, we've been redeemed out of slavery to sin, but we also have a promised land that's far better than the one the Jews got. You and I are going home to glory one day to be with Jesus. Those are all reasons. So the theme of this psalm is God's works, focusing on what God has done. And his first work is that of deliverance or exodus in which he created a people group. He created a people that would follow after him. And you and I also, through salvation, are created as his sons and daughters. God's second work, his covenantal instruction at Sinai, in other words, the instruction, the precepts, the law of God, that second work was offered to, as a means to shape a people. And I think that's discipleship. So he didn't only redeem them, he also gave them laws and precepts. This is how you should live so that you will have an abundant life. So just as the works of God in Israel's history demonstrated the faithfulness and justice of God, so too the precepts of God are reliable in carrying out his will. The law of the Lord, his precepts stand together in tandem with the events of the Exodus story. And they're all part of God's marvelous work. He saves us, and then he also shows us how to live so that we'll have an abundant life. The law, or the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, represents this decisive moment in the Exodus story when God establishes his covenant with the Israelites. And you and I have something even better than the law given at Mount Sinai. We have the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' own expression of God's will for us. Psalm 111 all the way through 119, there, there's a pretty deliberate a connection or association between history and Torah, between God's work uh, and his shaping of our identity as we worship him and follow him. The precepts of God are reliable. They can be trusted because they introduce a world of faithfulness and justice, and they represent a just and merciful God. I've told you before that I took my less than two-year-old and put him on the fridge and backed up and said, jump. And he launched himself off the fridge. Why? Because he trusted me. You and I can trust God because he's far more reliable than any one of us is. We can trust him. He's proven himself to be trustworthy. But the psalmist doesn't only focus on God's work. He also focuses on God's person. And you can't separate God's work from his person. I wish he would have done works and then person, like just nicely and neat, and they're all woven together. Because you can't actually, actually separate God's person and who he is as a person and his work. And what does he say about God's person? His righteousness endures forever. He is gracious and compassionate. He remembers his covenant. He's a promise keeper. He is faithful and just. His precepts are trustworthy. He is faithful and upright. His covenant is everlasting. He is holy and awesome. That's the God you and I serve. That's the God who chose to make us co-heirs with Christ. And as I was sitting there, as we were singing, I was thinking, because we're going to do communion this morning. 
And I was thinking about that scenario where the disciples had been arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom. Selfish, carnal, that sounds all too familiar. And Jesus quietly gets up and washes their feet. And then he takes the bread and the cup and he demonstrates the ultimate sacrifice. And then he calls us to commemorate and to remember. And, and really, like a blood pact between thieves, when we partake, we are agreeing to follow him wherever that leads. God is amazing. God's works in delivering the Jews from Egypt and in establishing his law have a singular focus. The faithfulness of God in creating his people and his faithfulness in providing a path to abundant life. Just as deliverance from Egypt signaled God's love for and commitment to his people, so too the covenant represents his love, his care, and his commitment to you and me. I think it's daunting to think that God would, would entrust this task to us, his children, to carry forth the message of salvation to the rest of the world. And, and, and we can't do it without the power and the strength and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. We can, only, we can only step out in obedience as we trust the Holy Spirit to work through us as vessels. So what is our response? Verse 10. You're wondering how a sermon could end that quickly, eh? Hmm. See, you guys are all going to take part in the sermon in a moment. Our response, verse 10. Number one, fear is the beginning of wisdom. This is not to be afraid. This word, unfortunately, in the English, leads us in the wrong direction. What it means to respect, to believe that God is who he says he is, to believe that he knows what he's talking about, that's, that's the respect. So if I actually believe God and I trust God and his, his lowest thoughts are higher than my highest thoughts, then that respect actually makes me behave in a certain way. And, and David says that's the beginning of wisdom. So this morning, if you want the recipe for wisdom, you just got it. If you want to be a wise person, and I'm, we're not talking about IQ here at all. We're not talking about being a genius. That ship has sailed for me. I can't remember what I did yesterday. But if you want to be a wise person, then, then trust God. Then respect God. Obey God. Secondly, he says, follow his precepts. That's understanding. So, so not only respecting God, but also then carrying out the second step, which is to follow him. And the psalmist says that obedience is actually equals understanding. You and I... You can't say you believe God and then, and then you don't actually do what he says. In verse 2, the psalmist called for the works of God to be studied and pondered. But in verse 8, he calls for the people to move from reflection to action, from observation to implementation. For the psalmist, the fear of the Lord is connected to living out the law of the Lord. Our response to a loving and merciful God is obedience and submission. And finally, he says in verse 10, 
He calls us to eternal praise. God is worthy of eternal praise. The connection between experience and testimony is vital. You can't stay quiet. I'm not talking about shark evangelism here either. I'm talking about somebody seeing that there's something different about you and finally asks, so what is it about you? And then you, you get to share. And your share isn't, well, I'm saved and bound for heaven and you're a heathen and bound for hell. That's probably not the right approach. But I have this amazing relationship with God. And it, it's just impacted my life and given me peace and a purpose for living. There's a connection between experience and testimony. This is why the psalmist calls the people of God to ponder, study, and delight in the stories of God's faithful work for and in a relationship with his people. The works of God in the past are the hope of God's people in the present. And I know some listening to me this morning are facing significant challenge. Uh, it might be health, it might be financial, it, it could be anything. And, and all I can do this morning is to suggest that you and I need to remember that God has been faithful in the past, and it's that faithfulness in the past that is our hope in the present and the future. God is a faithful God. I don't know if you've ever needed a cosigner, but you can't get a better cosigner than God. Because he always comes through, one way or another. I brought my 12 stones. Actually, they're Diane's, uh, but they're at our house, so possession is nine-tenths of the law. And we have them kind of on our front porch when we sit out there and, and talk and stuff like that. And the 12 stones of remembering. Remember the Jews, when they crossed the Jordan, they put up this altar of 12 stones so that they would remember and not forget These 12 stones of remembering help us to place our present in the context of having experienced God's faithfulness and compassion in the past. So if you're discouraged or struggling this morning, I don't want to be flippant, but that song, Count Your Many Blessings, comes to mind. God has been faithful in the past. He continues to be faithful. And, and sometimes we would expect a different answer to a prayer. Or we'd expect him to intervene in a different way. And yet he's God and he's sovereign and he knows what he's doing. And you and I need to trust him. We can trust him. Our God has called us out as his people. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. And then he also chooses to work with us as co-laborers with Christ. And through the giving of the law, God also provided a way for each generation to live into their identity as his people. And yeah, it's a bit of an upside-down kingdom. You're not working your way to the top, you're working your way to the bottom. Seeking to serve. We must choose to live into the ways of God in faithfulness and uprightness, following his precepts. <clears throat> 